the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering. Today we're going to hear a classic interview with Erwin Lutzer. He's the author of We Will Not Be Silent, Responding Courageously to Our Culture's Assault on Christianity. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. First, we'll take a look at some of the day's news. So um, fasten your seatbelts. Well, um, less than a month after uh, the governor here in Oregon and the governor in Washington dropped nearly all of the COVID-19 restrictions for people who are fully vaccinated, case numbers are on the rise again. Well, earlier this month, Los Angeles County in California, as you may know, once again started requiring people to wear masks indoors in public places, vaccinated or not. Well, does that mean that Oregon and southwest Washington will see mask mandates for those who are fully vaccinated? Well, it's hard to say, but there has been no word of that happening since the mandate was lifted. Officials, however, say there's still cause for concern as the number of cases are increasing in both states, Oregon and Washington. Well, the Oregon Health Authority reported on Wednesday that for the week of July the 12th through the 18th, 2,026 new daily cases were reported. Now, that's an increase of 54% over the week before and the highest weekly count in the past seven weeks. Well, the increase is being felt across the Columbia River uh, in southwest Washington as well. The numbers are beginning to tick up a little bit in Clark County. Uh, the governor, or Dr. Alan Melnick, public health director for Clark County, said, I'm looking at this day to day and the numbers have been increasing. Well, numbers compiled by OHA also hold additional reason for concern. One graphic for daily COVID cases from early June to mid-July shows case numbers were stable or dropping slightly in June, but in early July, they began trending up again. Well, on Monday, the 20th, Oregon reported 595 new cases, which is the most cases the state has seen in a single day for the past two months. Well, at the height of the pandemic, Oregon saw more than 1,000 cases a day. Well, in November of last year, before the vaccines were available, Oregon reported 1,700 new cases per day to give you some perspective. Well, cases fell thanks to the vaccine, then bumped up again in the spring of 2021, one day in um, April uh, we had 950 new cases. Well, the latest increase is small compared to the others, but the Delta variant that spreads twice as fast as the original has many people worried. Uh, Dr. Melnick says that he doesn't expect Clark County will see a change to the rule that lets vaccinated people skip the mask indoors. In Washington County, here in Oregon, COVID cases are up slightly. Health officials there are still suggesting vaccinated people wear masks in public, but it's not because the fully vaccinated are at risk. We're recommending it for ensuring that people feel comfortable if they're unvaccinated wearing a mask. So they can kind of blend in, I guess, is the logic. If you hear words of mask wearing for those who are already vaccinated, at least for now, remember, it's not mandatory, just nice. And uh, if it looks like the idea might become mandatory, some political leaders are already set to fight back, including Clackamas County Board Chair Tootie Smith, 
who said residents followed the rules for 15 months and are tired of mandates. When it comes to a mask mandate for my county, she says, this is what I say. Well, expletive, no. So that's where things stand at this point. Meanwhile, President Biden suggested on Wednesday that it was a matter of community responsibility to keep parents honest about whether their children age 12 and older are vaccinated when schools reopen later this year. He questioned parents' honesty about student vaccination, saying it's a matter of community responsibility. Well, this, of course, vexed parents who essentially are uh, said to be untrustworthy when it comes to vaccines. Now, we're on the honor system with regard to whether or not we're vaccinated. But when it comes to their children, the president seemed to suggest that parents can't be trusted. It's going to get a little bit tight in terms of mom and dad being honest that Johnny did or did not get vaccinated. That's going to raise questions, the president said. But I think what's going to happen is you're going to see this work out in ways that people are going to know in the community. Well, he indicated that communities would hold their members accountable regarding vaccination status. So the battle lines, apparently, according to the president, are going to be drawn and parents can't be trusted to tell the truth about the status of their kids and whether or not they've been vaccinated. So we are all racist, essentially. Well, you are. I'm African-American, so I'm exempt. We're all racists. And if you happen to be a parent, you're also a liar. It's great to be an American. On Thursday afternoon, Mississippi Attorney General Lynn Fitch filed a brief in the most important Supreme Court abortion case in three decades. In the brief defending the constitutionality of Mississippi's law that prohibits abortions after 15 weeks of gestation, with exceptions for when the life or physical health of the mother is endangered, and in cases of several fetal abnormalities that would prove fatal to the child, Attorney General Fitch argues that the Supreme Court's Roe and uh, Casey decisions should be overturned and state legislatures should be allowed to pass laws protecting the lives of human beings in the womb. Now, this is significant given the case that the Supreme Court will hear in its next session. If the court isn't willing to allow legislatures to pass any rational law protecting the lives of unborn children, the attorney general argues the Supreme Court should at the very least reject the unworkable and arbitrary line banning any prohibition on abortion before viability. Well, overruling Roe and Casey makes resolution of this case straightforward, the brief states. The Mississippi law here prohibits abortions after 15 weeks gestation, with exceptions for medical emergency or severe fetal abnormality. That law rationally furthers valid interests in protecting unborn life, women's health, and the medical profession's integrity. It is therefore constitutional. If this court does not overrule Roe and Casey's heightened scrutiny regime outright, it should at minimum hold that there is no pre-viability barrier to state prohibitions on abortion and uphold Mississippi's law. Well, the brief was submitted by the Attorney General Fitch, the first woman ever elected as Attorney General in Mississippi, deconstructs the Roe and Casey decisions that declared almost all state law prohibiting abortion unconstitutional. And then the brief makes the case that the doctrines of Stardesis, rather, cannot save the Supreme Court's erroneous abortion precedence. Well, I don't have time today to go into some of the key excerpts, but we'll do that next week. This is significant in the... um, run up to the Supreme Court hearing a case that has the potential, uh, has uh, the elements that could result in Roe versus Wade being overturned. Now, my prediction is it will not. The the, uh, courts tend to be very conservative uh, with regard to overturning precedent, but uh, only time will tell. 
Well, an advisory panel to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said the benefits of COVID-19 vaccines far outweigh potential risks amid an ongoing review of reports of a rare nerve disorder in a small fraction of Johnson & Johnson recipients. Uh, or rather jab recipients. However, given the possible link, a new update will advise patients with a history of Guillain-Barr syndrome to seek uh, mRNA vaccines. Well, CDC's Dr. Hannah Rosenblum, who presented during the advisory committee on immunization practices meeting on Thursday, said this assessment demonstrates that the benefits of COVID-19 vaccination far outweigh the potential risks, specifically with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine uh, that reports uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome in a small number of cases. And by the way, that's not unusual for that particular um, a syndrome <clears throat> to be listed with vaccines. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, at least nine people working the bootleg fire in southern Oregon have tested positive for COVID-19. As of the 21st of this month, there were 2,359 total personnel working that fire. Well, people who test positive for COVID-19 are quarantined away from the main fire camp. According to the Oregon Department of Forestry Incident Management Team, people who report symptoms as well as anybody who worked closely with them who report symptoms are being tested and isolated until the results come back following protocols developed by OHA. Well, the uh, prevention measures at fire camps include a designated health liaison whose primary focus is to prevent the spread of the virus and managing outbreaks. The camps also have a thorough risk management process to prevent the uh, spread of COVID-19. It includes hand washing stations, sanitation and cleaning supplies, cleaning uh, services to regularly disinfect services and so on. I bring it up because these firefighters who have a significant uh, and very dangerous job to do have to face the same things that well the rest of us do and COVID-19 complicates matters rather significantly as we're praying for those personnel and their families who are concerned uh, about them keep in mind that COVID-19 is just another of their challenges I also wanted to mention that uh, as thousands of these federal wildfire firefighters battle the bootleg fire and there are you know upwards of 2,000 and other wildfires raging in Oregon and Washington um, these firefighters and advocates say they aren't earning enough money to um, retain the number of workers that they need. An entry-level firefighter with the U.S. Forest Service currently starts at $13.45 an hour. One smoke jumper wrote an opinion piece for the Oregonian saying at the Lincoln Center McDonald's just west of Otis, another community nearly erased from the map by wildfires, a sign in the window advertised starting salary $15 an hour. My wife joked that I should apply there for more job security, and she's right. So keep in mind that they're not actually earning very much money uh, to put their lives on the line to protect the rest of us. Uh, This particular firefighter, um, Ben Elkind, uh, wrote that he's never earned more than $20 an hour in 14 years as a wildland firefighter, even as an incident commander with advanced qualifications. Again, a little perspective on those who are... Uh, working very hard to contain that wildfire and others. Well, in other news, the White House is weighing pushing masks as COVID cases increase. The administration is reportedly weighing whether to formally urge vaccinated Americans to once again mask up as the country experiences an increase in the number of COVID-19 Delta variant cases. 
And White House aides are in talks with officials at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention about proposed messaging to the public. So far, they've botched that fairly badly. People familiar with the discussions told the Post that the White House is hesitant to implement policies that would explicitly mandate people show proof of their vaccination status. One idea reportedly thrown around was to ask Americans to wear masks when vaccinated and unvaccinated so that uh, people uh, would congregate um, in crowded places safely. Well, the talks come as COVID-19 cases have nearly tripled in the United States in recent weeks. And by the way, the vast majority are concentrated in four states, putting yet another strain on hospitals and exhausting doctors. The seven-day rolling average across the U.S. for daily new cases rose over the past two weeks to more than 37,000 on Tuesday, up from less than 13,700 on the 7th, according to data from Johns Hopkins University. Well, health officials are blaming the the Delta variant slowing vaccine rates. Barely more than 56 percent of Americans have received at least one dose of the vaccine, according to the CDC. You're not um, immune to the Delta variant, but apparently you're less likely to have a severe case of COVID should you contract it. And you're less likely to contract it, depending on which of the vaccines you have been given. Well, China is shocked over the World Health Organization's plan for a second uh, phase of their COVID origins study. And an expert says uh, full FDA approval for COVID-19 vaccines could ease vaccine hesitancy unless, of course, it's politically motivated. The New Jersey hospital system's threat uh, to fire unvaccinated employees is facing backlash. And President Biden is questioning parents' honesty about student vaccination, saying it's a matter of community responsibility. Meanwhile, college coaches and administrators are urging players to vaccinate, but thus far aren't requiring them to do so. Well, shoplifter, uh, shoplifters rather hit a Los Angeles area TJ Maxx and casually... Um, Uh, watching them casually leave uh, the store carrying heaps of stolen goods. It was really quite remarkable to witness. Two men in a Los Angeles suburb were seen on camera brazenly leaving the store with their arms full of shoplifted items. They didn't even run out. They just walked out, according to the Los Angeles Police Department. Uh, And so that's sending a message that we, the criminals, are winning. Well, the video was recently filmed at a TJ Maxx in Granada Hills, and shows two men leaving the store with their uh, arms packed with uh, clothes and other items, uh, with one of the men carrying a large duffel bag that appears to be full of items as well. That looks great, one man comments in the video as the men walk by. The LAPD is investigating the incident, but neither of the men have been charged or arrested. That's according to the law there, Prop 47, you might recall. The employees at TJ Mask, Max rather, have been told that in these specific circumstances, it's not worth it for you to go and physically attack, physically stop people that are walking out with these inventory. Criminal defense attorney uh, said of why many employees don't uh, confront shoplifters because these businesses have insurance. Well, the attorney who serves as vice president of the Los Angeles a police Protective League said that she blames the incident on Prop 47, a 2014 referendum that lowered criminal sentences on crimes such as shoplifting. In other developments, Texas Border Patrol agents arrested a man who was wanted on sex crimes involving a child after he crossed the border into the United States. And a Louisiana dad was shot and killed by a teenager who entered his underage daughter's room through an upstairs window, according to police. Well, ex-Detroit Police Chief James Craig declares, I'm running to unseat Governor Gretchen Whitmer. 
A recently retired Detroit Police Chief James Craig joined Tucker Carlson tonight on Wednesday to to uh, expand on what he sees as the failed leadership of the incumbent Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer and announced a gubernatorial uh, gubernatorial exploratory committee, excuse me. Craig, a Detroit native who spent the last eight years leading the Motor City's law enforcement uh, uh, force uh, after tenure in Cincinnati and here in Portland, said that he uh, protected and served for 44 years and now wants to do the same for the entire state of Michigan. We launched today the Chief James Craig for Governor Exploratory Committee, the Republican said, adding he protected his city from destructive left-wing riots that sprang up in other places like Philadelphia, New York, and Los Angeles last year. We know what happened last year when other cities were burned, Portland, Seattle, Los Angeles, Chicago, Detroit, did not burn. He added that another major concern for the people of Michigan is the leadership or lack thereof of Governor Gretchen Whitmer. The Democrats' uh, na- uh, name was often mentioned along with liberal governors of New York, California, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey when criticisms were made about statewide socioeconomic lockdowns. I can't help but think about the small businesses who were suffering through the pandemic and now we want to give handouts and businesses can't even hire employees, Craig lamented. I've got to tell you, I'm running Because when I look at politicians across the country, when I look at Governor Whitmer, she follows different rules. She just does. Hmm. Well, in other developments, Leo Terrell slammed Governor Newsom's claim of a significant decline in crime. I guess if you decriminalize certain criminal acts, I suppose the math would pan out. Tucker Carlson says we are witnessing the most aggressive crackdown on civil liberties in our lifetime. I think he may be on to something. Well, China won't carry LeBron's Space Jam, despite the lengths to which LeBron has gone to protect his association with China. And bloodied a little uh, Havana demonstrator slammed President Biden, saying Cubans don't want vaccines. They want freedom. Biden says abolishing the filibuster would throw the entire Congress into chaos. Well, PG&E will spend at least $15 billion burying power lines. And Boris Yellen snubs the Senate GOP as the debt ceiling expiration looms. Well, the state is announcing a $26 billion settlement to uh, resolve the opioid lawsuits. Meanwhile, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced on Wednesday she's rejecting two of the five GOP picks that sit on the newly formed January 6th select committee. Uh, Pelosi said Wednesday she won't appoint representatives Jim Jordan from Ohio or Jim Banks of Indiana, two strong allies of the former president, uh, to the committee formed to investigate the cause of the January 6th Capitol riot and make uh, recommendations on preventing future violence. Her decision immediately sparked backlash from GOP leader Kevin McCarthy, who called her move unprecedented and and threatened, rather, to have all Republicans uh, boycott the committee if Jordan and Banks did not get appointed. Uh, Unless uh, Speaker Pelosi reverses course and seats all five Republican nominees, Republicans will not be party to the sham process and will instead pursue our own investigation of the facts McCarthy said in a statement, well, she did not reverse her uh, herself. And we know of at least one Republican who said she will serve on that committee. So the drama in Washington around this January 6th event and the committee rising from it continues. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break, but I promise we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, my conversation with Erwin Lutzer. He's the author of We Will Not Be Silenced, Responding Courageously to Our Culture's Assault on Christianity. Second hour of today's program. 
Well, Senate Republicans voted against opening debate on a bipartisan infrastructure bill yesterday. The proposal would spend roughly $1.2 trillion on infrastructure upgrades and has the support of 11 Senate Republicans who nevertheless voted against opening debate because the text of the bill has not yet been finalized. With Republicans and Democrats tied 50-50 in the Senate, that GOP support gives the proposal a filibuster-proof majority. Republicans asked Majority Leader Chuck Schumer in a letter on Tuesday to delay the vote because caucus members have not yet reached an agreement with the Democrats to negotiate the legislation. Schumer decided to move ahead anyway with a procedural vote on the bill despite GOP reservations. Well, 10 Republicans could still vote to open debate on the legislation this coming Monday, according to a GOP source. A moderate uh, Senate Democrat said that they would uh, back opening debate following meetings with Schumer on Tuesday. Well, uh, Chuck has a strategy he's working on, and I trust him when he tells me, hey, we're going to pass this bill. That's a quote from Senator Joe Manchin, a Democrat from West Virginia. Meanwhile, Democrats are planning to pass a partisan infrastructure plan via budget reconciliation rules in the Senate, which allows certain pieces of legislation to pass with a simple majority. That plan, expected to cost $3.5 trillion, uh, will likely include measures that are not passed in the bipartisan bill. Well, the NFL is continuing to come down hard on unvaccinated players as a new memo released today states that teams could potentially forfeit a game due to a COVID-19 outbreak amongst unvaccinated players. Commissioner Roger Goodell said in a memo obtained by the Associated Press that the league doesn't intend to add another week uh, to accommodate games that cannot be rescheduled due to an outbreak. As we learned last year, we can play a full season if we maintain a firm commitment to adhering to our health and safety protocols and to making needed adjustments in response to changing conditions. If a game can't be rescheduled and is canceled due to a COVID outbreak among non-vaccinated players on one of the competing teams, the team with the outbreak will forfeit and will be deemed to have played 16 games for the purpose of draft, waiver, priority, etc. Well, in addition to forfeiting, if a game can't be made up in the 18-week schedule, players on both teams will not be paid for the game. Well, the league's updated policy for vaccinated persons back in June was met with pretty harsh backlash by several players, most notably Buffalo Bills wide receiver Cole Beasley, who said he would rather retire than get vaccinated. Well, the memo today included further changes, including positive COVID tests for vaccinated and unvaccinated players. Those who do test positive and have received the vaccine will be able to return after two negative tests at least 24 hours apart. Those without the vaccine will have to abide by a 2020 policy, which includes a 10-day quarantine. There's already uh, uh, players who are... uh, suggesting that they are dissatisfied with this plan and the fact that they may have to pay for those forfeited games. More on that, I'm certain, in the days ahead. Well, President Biden called for a ban on handguns in a troubling CNN town hall. In a bewildering, illogical CNN town hall, the president said, among other things, whether it's a nine millimeter pistol or whether it's a rifle, is ridiculous. I'm continuing to push the elimination of a sale of those things, but I'm not likely to get that done in the near term. Well, he also said, you're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations, which show uh, he is, um, well, not following what's happening. Uh, is uh, is he telling us uh, all those Texas Democrats who got COVID lied? The president also insisted the out-of-control spending will reduce inflation, reduce inflation, reduce inflation. 
That's a quote. He told a restaurant owner struggling to find workers to simply pay them more. And Katie Pavlich commenting on it all. A perfect and telling response with a man who has only been in government for decades, taking money from taxpayers instead of uh, uh, signing the uh, front of paychecks and half the room. Uh, where he did the town hall was apparently empty. I'm not surprised we're in the middle of a pandemic. Well, a judge slapped California, affirming that Larry Elder will appear on their gubernatorial ballot, along with others, I suppose. The judge's ruling reverses the action of state election officials this week who blocked Elder from running in the race, citing incomplete federal tax filings requiring required rather to become a candidate. His campaign office received notice on Sunday that he was disqualified from being on the ballot. Elder said he suspects California Democrats in uh, cahoots with uh, Newsom have been engaging in political shenanigans to keep him off the uh, out of the election, which is scheduled for the 14th of September, according to the Associated Press. Well, under Biden, race relations have hit a new low. Remember how they dropped during the Obama Biden administration? Well, it's worse now with a nine point drop in just two years. Eric Clapton says, I will not perform when vaccination is required upon entry. Uh, responding to an announcement from British Prime Minister Boris Johnson that anyone wanting to enter nightclubs or other crowded venues will have to show proof of COVID vaccination beginning in September. The legendary rock star issued a statement on Wednesday following the prime minister's announcement on Monday, the 19th of July, 2021. I feel honor bound to make an announcement of my own. I wish to say that I will not perform on any stage where there is a discriminated audience present. Clapton said, adding, unless there is provision made for all people to attend, I reserve the right to cancel the show. California Governor Newsom to the homeless come to California. Well, the Democrat made the comment when asked about the possible unintended consequences of signing the $12 billion AB 140 housing bill. Officials are required to develop a framework for the California Dream for All program, the goals of which would make home ownership more affordable. To the extent that people want to come here for new beginnings and all income levels, that's part of the California Dream. And we have a responsibility to accommodate and enliven and inspire. And the California Dream is still alive and well. Well, um, Mr. Newsom said on Monday when asked if the Golden State mired in homeless crisis might become a magnet for similar out-of-state populations. He didn't answer that question directly, but we'll see what happens. House Republicans are calling for universities that provide chemical abortions to lose their funding. From that story, Illinois Representative Mary Miller and Montana Senator Steve Daines co-sponsored the legislation in response to a 2019 California bill requiring public universities to provide chemical abortion pills to students beginning in 2023. The California legislation became the first in the nation to require abortion medication on campuses and was signed into law by Democrat Governor Gavin Newsom. Governor DeSantis is urging the public to get vaccinated. DeSantis also said that people who are vaccinated will not experience the current wave of new COVID-19 cases in the state, saying that he gets a little bit frustrated over jurisdictions in the state still enforcing mask mandates, arguing that those jurisdictions are implying that the vaccines don't work. Richard Lowry says classic DeSantis, clear, forceful and factual, despite the ongoing effort to make him out as some sort of uh, troglodyte. He follows the latest data on all this very closely and always uh, knows uh, what he's talking about.
Mm. Well, Democrats are seeking to give uh, blacks preference for federal aid over whites. In a bold act of racial discrimination, Maxine Waters wants the uh, race-based preference included in the massive spending package. The next phase in the civil rights movement, that's what they're calling it. But no, this is a reversal of the, the key and central principle of equality. Well, scientists have discovered ancient virus uh, viruses, plural, frozen in ice samples from a Tibetan plateau in China from the what could possibly go wrong category. Well, in government and politics, Rand Paul says that he will seek a criminal referral from the Department of Justice over Anthony Fauci's testimony. That's probably going nowhere. And the Department of Education is walking back its ties to a group pushing critical race theory in schools. They said it was just a mistake. An entrapment ruse, well, the FBI informants had a bigger role in Governor Gretchen Whitmer's kidnap plot than originally thought. Well, the White House is weighing uh, pushing masks again as COVID increases, or rather cases increase. And the big three U.S. drug distributors, along with Johnson & Johnson, have reached a landmark $26 billion opioid settlement. Well, race relations are at a new low uh, in the country, and a federal judge has blocked Arkansas's common-sense ban on transgender surgery for children. Governor Gavin Newsom says out-of-state vagrants are welcome in California, which already has 25% of the nation's homeless. And the U.S. women's soccer team, well, they took a stunning loss after kneeling for a BLM protest at an Olympic opener. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour after news and traffic, We'll hear from Erwin Lutzer. He's the author of We Will Not Be Silenced, Responding Courageously to Our Culture's Assault on Christianity. So stick around for that. Well, Disney is moving more than 2,000 jobs out of California and to Florida, citing the latter's pro-business policies, and families are struggling to cope with inflation egged on by statist policies. Well, survivors of communism, pro-democracy activists and political leaders gathered in Washington on Tuesday to commemorate the annual Captive Nations Week. First, I've heard of it. Well, the four hour summit hosted by the Victims of Communism Memorial Fund featured firsthand testimonies about the uh, about an expert analysis of uh, communist regimes across the globe. But it also served as a warning about the need to protect freedom at all costs. As we observe Captive Nations Week, let us remember what President Ronald Reagan, my former boss, said in 1983. Former Ambassador Paula Dobryansky said in her remarks, he said, free people, if they are to remain free, must defend the liberty of others. Today, we came together to advance that noble goal. Well, in 1959, President Dwight D. Eisenhower issued a proclamation declaring the third week of July as Captive Nations Week, writing, I invite the people of the United States of America to observe such uh, week with appropriate ceremonies and activities, and I urge them to study the plight of the Soviet-dominated nations and to recommit themselves to the support of the just aspirations of the people of those captive nations. More than 60 years later, the tradition of a presidential proclamation of Captive Nations Week continues. Well, on this day in history, 1862, President Abraham Lincoln presents to his cabinet a preliminary draft of the Emancipation Proclamation. 1934, bank robber John Dillinger is shot to death by federal agents outside Chicago's Biograph Theater, 
where he had just seen the Clark Gable movie Manhattan Melodrama. On this day in history, 1937, the U.S. Senate rejected President Franklin D. Roosevelt's proposal to add more justices to the U.S. Supreme Court. 1942, the Nazis began transporting Jews from the Warsaw Ghetto to the Treblinka concentration camp. 1942, gasoline rationing involving the use of coupons began along the Atlantic seaboard. 1975, the House of Representatives joins the Senate in voting to restore the American citizenship of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. And 2009, President Barack Obama tells a primetime press conference that Cambridge, Massachusetts police acted stupidly in the arrest of prominent black scholar Henry Louis Gates Jr., and that despite racial progress, blacks and Hispanics are still singled out unfairly for arrest. The so-called beer summit followed. And 25 years, about 25 and a half years ago, KPDQ was blessed with an employee for whom tomorrow will be her last day. I'm referring to Susie. If you've ever called KPDQ, you've heard the sweetest voice on the planet respond. Susie has been the receptionist here at KPDQ, and I use that word advisably because what she has done here is far more than just answer the phones here at KPDQ. But tomorrow is going to be her last day. Now, Susie has prayed with KPDQ listeners. In fact, she has written out the prayer requests of many of you. She didn't just say, I will pray for you. Some of you she prayed for right there on the phone, but she actually made note of those prayers She prayed over them and she kept them. She would pray over the needs of KPDQ listeners who would call in some very distressed. She handled callers who, well, were less than gracious. Maybe they were angry about something they heard on the Georgine Rice show or they didn't like a program that aired on KPDQ. And she was the first voice they heard and she would receive them graciously. You can't imagine how difficult it can be to respond to someone who calls Their anger isn't directed specifically toward you, but you wouldn't know that based on how the call goes. She was gracious. She would keep a smile on her face. In fact, she keeps a little mirror right uh, at the front desk so that when she answers the phone, she makes sure she has a smile on her face so that that's reflected in her tone of voice. That's Susie. She has had people walk in uh, off the streets into the office here who are distressed. She's prayed with them. She's encouraged them. She's inspired them. And, of course, she's ministered to those of us who work with her for many, many years. She's extremely talented. You've probably heard her on the air here on KPDQ and other stations over the years uh, because she's worn several hats here in addition to serving as the receptionist, which is, again, a title that doesn't really describe all that she's done here um, as part of the KPDQ family. Tomorrow, as I mentioned, is going to be her last day. We're going to take her out to lunch and we're going to try to, although I'm certain we will fall Uh, Far short, we're going to try to let her know what a difference she has made here. Uh, In fact, that box that has the prayer requests of so many of us, so many of you, she's kept and she's kept them in a box. And I've I told her, you know what that is? That's your legacy box. And when you think about the last twenty five and a half years and whether or not you made an impact, if you made a difference in the lives of people in this community, in this building, I want you to open that box and to just look at the people you prayed for, that you stormed heaven uh, in humility, praying for people you may never have met uh, who were distressed or whose son or daughter 
um, had gone off the rail or who just needed prayer for direction, any number of things. And she took them seriously. She prayed over them. She remembered them. She remembered you and prayed for you. Well, tomorrow is Susie's last day. Someone else will sit at that desk and someone else will answer the phone. But I promise you, there will not be another Susie. It has been such a blessing to be her co-worker and to call her my friend. When she and her husband, Roger, who also worked here at KPDQ, were about to be married some years ago, she was preparing to uh, get married in the office of the general manager here at KPDQ. And I insisted, no, that is not good enough for you and your soon-to-be husband. They came to our house and we had a little wedding. She has been dear to my heart ever since. Well, really before then, she and her husband, Roger, uh, have been very dear to my heart. But I hope, I hope she has been dear to your heart as well. That sweet voice that you hear when you, uh, when you dial the number for KPDQ or any of our sister station. That sweet face that you're greeted by when you come to KPDQ. That extends to strangers coming off the street, uh, people who are coming to pick up prizes, um, broadcasters who are here to uh, come into the station and record their program. Any number of reasons people come to the station, maybe picking up a prize, who knows. Susie is the person that has greeted you and her kindness and generosity of spirit, um, her gift to KPDQ and to this community will not soon be forgotten. And I would encourage you, if you've ever called KPDQ for any reason and you've had the opportunity to hear the voice and had an interaction with Susie, would you call KPDQ tomorrow and just wish her well? May seem sort of awkward, but let me just encourage you to let Susie know what she has meant to you. Just to say thank you for her faithfulness. She's had some uh, some health challenges along the way, but she has been faithful in maintaining a good uh, attitude and a sweetness about her that uh, really uh, demonstrates that she is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, our Portland number is 503 786 9390 503-786-9390. If you're out of the area, you can call her toll free at 800-845-2162. 800-845-2162. You can look it up. Uh, you can email whatever you choose to do. If you think of it, would you, would you let Susie know that she has been and is a blessing as she starts this new chapter? I'm so excited to see what God has in mind for her, because while this door closes, God is opening new opportunities for this very talented uh, young woman. Susie, thanks for your faithfulness. You are a gift and you will be missed. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Erwin Lutzer is next. We will not be silenced, responding courageously to our culture's assault on Christianity when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I've been looking forward to the conversation I'm just about to engage in with Dr. Lutzer. Every day it seems that here in America, our society is falling farther away from Christian values and common decency, and many of us are unsure how to respond, but respond we must. Well, in his latest book, We Will Not Be Silenced, Responding Courageously to Our cultural uh, Culture's Assault on Christianity, my guest, Dr. Erwin Lutzer, he equips readers with the truth of scripture to help live out our convictions against the growing tide of hostility. Dr. David 
David Jeremiah, he points out in the foreword that the book examines every cultural issue that we're facing. Nothing is left out. It addresses diversity issues, racial issues, gender issues, social justice, and much more. Once again, we will not be silenced. Arms believers with a deeper understanding of the hurts and concerns of non-believers with regard to social issues so the church is able to respond in a compassionate and gentle manner. Well, Dr. Lutzer is the pastor emeritus of the Moody Church where he served as the senior pastor for 36 years, a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary and Loyola University. He's the author of numerous books, including the Gold Medallion Award winner, Hitler's Cross, and the bestseller, One Minute After You Die. He's also a teacher on radio programs, heard on more than 700 stations. We are delighted to have him with us today to talk about this very timely book, We Will Not Be Silenced. Dr. Lutzer, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so glad that I can join you and uh, so glad for your ministry. Well, I appreciate your encouragement. This is such a timely book. I, I, I suppose one would wonder, is this a prophetic screed or is this just, um, you know, having the insight to see where our country has been going for a very long period of time uh, and how we as the church ought to respond uh, and the need for us to be aware. What inspired you to release this book at this time and to write it in general for the sake of the church and the culture? Well, you know, the way it has worked out, first of all, let me say I wrote the book when I began to realize that the radical left does not believe that America can be fixed. It must be destroyed. And then on the foundations, on the rubble of our Christian Judeo heritage, they want to build a new America based on Marxist principles. And, you know, one of the things that I discovered, in fact, the first chapter is on Marxism, I didn't realize that cultural Marxism, which means that Marxism is to be implemented incrementally, Mm -hmm. really underlies everything that is happening in our society that isn't good. And that's why I get into diversity issues, you know, a biblical view of race as opposed to social justice. And there's a right way to talk about social justice, but there's also a wrong way. And then critical race theory, why it is. In fact, I might say that one of the reasons I wrote it, among many others, is so that when parents send their kids off to school and they come back hating America, parents would understand what is being taught to my Mm -hmm. child about America. And why do they come back saying that we are such a racist nation and uh, all of those other things? But I have eight different assaults that are directed against the church, but each chapter ends with an admonition as to what I think the church should be doing. And I appreciate that so much because one can leave hopeless when you consider where we stand as a nation today. I think for many people, the wake-up call really began with this latest presidential election, but it's it's healthy for us to have a clear understanding of what direction the culture is taking. I think it's important to point out um, a statement that you make in the book to, to give our listeners some perspective on where you come from. You write that I am opposed to a form of Christianity that judges without licensing and sees the faults of others without seeing our own. As a pastor, my heart breaks for those who hurt, who are confused, and who don't know where to turn for help. Our churches should be sanctuaries for the downtrodden, the oppressed, and the lonely. Uh, They should be hospitals for the soul. You take a very compassionate um, approach, but I am grateful to say that it's also a thoroughly biblical approach to the issues confronting us today as the church and a nation. 
as a matter of fact, when it comes to issues of sexuality, for example, I point out it is much better to be thought of as hateful and speak the truth than to speak lies with compassionate tones and um, a sense of caring. Uh, so yes, what I do is emphasize the need for truth. There's always that balance, love and truth. But I really do think that unless we approach the culture with brokenness, unless that happens, you know, we aren't going to be heard. And so what we need to do is to try to understand where people are coming from and to listen to them. By the way, it just comes to mind that one of my chapters, for example, is on propaganda. And mm -hmm. I point out that the purpose of propaganda is to so change people's perception of reality that no matter how much counter evidence, they will not change their minds. And so how are we going to change people's minds? Well, we do need to listen and so forth. But we are actually, and I know that there's a lot of um, information swirling around right now because of the presidential election. But, you know, my heart breaks because I think we are on the verge of seeing things against the church that we've never seen before. And, um, you know, we could talk about any one of these things, but even the sexualization of children, for example, or socialism, which happens to be, I think, one of the longest chapters in my book. So the at what is happening, and by the way, thank you so much for your intro. You ask whether or not it's a prophetic book. Actually, this book was written and completed in about um, August almost of this year. Well, I guess maybe a little bit earlier than that. Let's just say uh, July and August. And so it deals with the tearing down of monuments, what's going on there, the whole issue of race in America, the way in which it's being approached, what children and young people are learning today in their schools. So all those issues are ones that I've talked about. Yes, yes. Well, I want to cover much of that as much as our time will permit. But let's begin uh, with a subject that you mentioned early on, and that is cultural Marxism. The word is being used quite often these days. But let's talk about what it is and what its goals are so that we as the body of Christ, those of us who are committed to biblical truth, uh, what we need to know in order to effectively minister to our communities and confront falsehood. Thank you so much for asking that. That's one of the most important questions. When Marx gave his theories, we know that in Russia and other countries, Marxism came with a, a revolution with guns and the killing of millions of people and so forth. Marx is basically statism, that the mm -hmm. state has to take over the means of production. The state has to take the place of God. All right, he believed that the key to history was oppression. And if we could just rid the world of oppression, everybody would live together in harmony and peace. And here's a very important point. He believed that the family, the nuclear family, was a great hindrance to the glories and the beauty of the Marxist state. Why? Families were a unit of oppression. You know, husbands oppressed their wives, parents oppressed their children, they took them to church, God was the ultimate oppressor, and so what he needed to do is to break up the nuclear family. 
and furthermore, families tend to pass on their wealth. Well, that's contrary to the Marxist view of inequality. So what he did is he said that women have to work outside the home, the children have to be raised by the state, and so forth. Okay, that's Marxism. Cultural Marxism says we can bring these same changes about, but do it incrementally so that people will want Marxism because they will see how valuable it is and they will see its benefits. So what we can do by capturing law, by capturing education, by capturing the media and even elections, we can bring about the beauties of Marxism as it is believed. We can do that without killing people. We can do it even, quote, uh, demographically, (laughs) of course, I mean, (laughs) from the standpoint of democracy. We can do it that way. And so his whole, uh, excuse me, so cultural Marxism comes along and says, let's do it bit by bit. Now, people need to understand, as I've emphasized, that the goals are the same. The state has to be supreme. And dependence upon the state is absolutely important. And uh, so that's why oftentimes you find this lurch toward socialism. Mm-hmm. Oh, I could talk about that for a moment. Let me just well, in say fact, this. That... We're going to take a break and we'll give you an opportunity to talk about that. Finish your thought, but we'll return and talk a bit about socialism. Yeah, socialism always talks about how to divide wealth. It never talks about creating it because it can't create it. That's simply in a couple of sentences. <laughs> hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking this afternoon with uh, Dr. Erwin Lutzer. His latest book, We Will Not Be Silenced, Responding Courageously to Our Culture's Assault on Christianity. We need to take a quick break, but we will be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Erwin Lutzer. He is the author of We Will Not Be Silenced, Responding Courageously to Our Culture's Assault on Christianity, covering all of the major issues of our day and giving us an understanding, but also a Christian perspective on how we can respond to the culture. Now, just before the break, we were talking about your longest chapter, which is on socialism and why it's so attractive and why it must fail and how we as believers should respond, because a Along with the discussion of socialism, we're hearing and have for quite some time statements that Jesus was a socialist, and this is more uh, reflective of Christianity than is capitalism, for example. Yeah, very good questions. Uh, Here's the important thing. As I mentioned before the break, socialism only talks about how to divide wealth and not how to create it. And the reason is because socialism cannot create wealth. When you have equality of income, for example, Rebecca and I have been in Russia where in the 1980s, where a doctor was paid essentially as much as other hospital workers. Well, obviously there was a great uh, dearth of doctors who would want to be a doctor. So socialism has to control wages. It has to control earnings. It cannot create wealth. And so when it runs out of money, You remember Margaret Thatcher's very famous line, 
when she says the problem with socialism is that pretty soon you run out of people's other people's money. Well, when you run out of other people's money, there's only one thing that the government can do, and that is to create more money. And so you have rampant inflation as all of these things begin to happen. Only the freedom of capitalism is able to create wealth. I want to throw this in, and then I'll answer your question about Jesus. But um, it has been said, why is it that mice die in mouse traps? Well, the answer is because they don't understand why the cheese is free. Now, that being said, was Jesus a socialist? Absolutely not. I point out that in the New Testament, for example, there was no socialism. But let's talk about Jesus. Jesus told a parable in which he said that there was one man who was given ten talents, and another man was given five, and another three, and another one. Jesus knew that there would not be equality of income. We should seek equality of opportunity for people, but there will never be equality of outcomes. There's, also, there's always going to be a difference as to how much people earn and their station in life. What the Bible does require, however, is that everybody is responsible for what they have. Luke 12:48, unto whom much is given, much is required. Those who haven't received much will be judged by a different standard. God is not a socialist. He didn't treat um, Hammurabi the way he treated Abraham. He sovereignly saves Abraham and chooses the Jews. And so the whole idea that you're going to have socialism, which is imposed by the state and forced upon us, is really totally foreign to the scriptures. You also have a chapter, and I, I love that you included this because it's so important today. One of the most interesting chapters is on propaganda. Now, what are the goals and how are these goals being achieved? And, and what's the, the means by which propaganda uh, is being, um, uh, being used? Propaganda is used in many different ways. Sometimes slogans, for example, contain a lot of propaganda. I refer to Hitler because the same-sex movement, the homosexual movement in the early 80s, wrote a book on how they were going to change America's perception of homosexuality. And they actually said that um, they were relying on some things that Hitler had said. Because Hitler said that with the right use of propaganda, you can make heaven appear like hell and hell appear like heaven. So let's, uh, there are different ways it's done, but let's dive into this business of slogans. When Hitler starved children, he called it putting them on a low-calorie diet. And you think, for example, in our abortion clinics today, nobody talking, talks about the killing of preborn infants. What do they talk about? Uh, they talk about uh, the termination of a pregnancy and uh, a woman's right to choose. So what you do is you hide what you are doing. When Hitler wanted to exterminate the Jews, he called it the cleansing of the land. And today, of course, you oftentimes have slogans. Let's even talk about Black Lives Matter. Do black lives matter? Of course they matter. All black lives matter. 
including the ones that are shot oftentimes here in the city of Chicago every week. All black, and I don't mean to imply that only black lives are shot. I'm just simply saying that, of course, black lives matter. But the organization that takes that mantra actually is Marxist. That's why it seeks the destruction of the family that we talked about earlier in the show. And, and one of the founders says, we are trained Marxists. Marxist, yes. What is my point? You use slogans that appear to be good, but you use it to camouflage what it is that you're really going to do. So that's one way propaganda is. The other is you enforce it by fear and hate. And you make people fear that if they don't fall in line, they are going to be in trouble. And we have lots of examples of that happening in our society today. There's a doctor who said that when he gives uh, transgender people or people who think that they are transgender, he cannot tell them about the harm that will come to them if they have transgender surgery because he would be fired as a doctor. So he cannot even practice his trade with what he knows. So we are living at a time when propaganda is put forth with fear and hatred. And so you have what I call cultural streams that oftentimes are very difficult to withstand. You um, also have an interesting chapter on how the radical left is teaming up with Islam to destroy America. Now, that may seem nonsensical to some of your readers and our listeners. Uh, why that would be the case, I guess the ends justify the means. But can you talk a bit about that very interesting chapter that might surprise your readers? Well, yeah, and the reason that they are together is not because they agree, uh, you know, um, Islam, of course, a very supremacist religion wanting to impose Islam, Sharia law. Why would the radical left join with them? Well, in military terms, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So what, that, what happens is you will always find the left defending Islam. There is separation of church and state. We've heard about that for a long time. But um, when money is used and it is being used to build prayer rooms for Muslim students in our public schools, there's no opposition from the ACLU. More ominously, there are schools today in America where Islam is being taught, and when parents object, the parents are called haters and, and intolerant and everything else. Could you imagine schools where... Christianity were taught. And so in that chapter, I also talk about Islam's view of immigration. In the Quran, it is very important to understand that immigration is seen as a means of spreading the faith. Now, there are many Muslims in America who have picked up on Western values. They have no special intention of imposing Islam, but the radicals certainly do. And uh, while I'm on the topic, there are churches today that have, um, you know, a common idea of bringing in an imam for Christian dialogue with Muslims. This is so wrong. I quote a book written by Muslims for Muslims on how to make Islam palatable to Americans. 
so that they are willing to accept it. I'm not opposed to a debate, but where somebody is allowed to give his own view without contradiction and without any rebuttal, oftentimes this leads to a very skewed view of what Islam is really like. We're talking with Dr. Erwin Lutzer, and I think we have time for one more segment. His book is titled, We Will Not Be Silenced, Responding Courageously to Our Culture's Assault on Christianity, an important book for us to understand the culture, and more importantly, our response as believers, as followers of Christ. One of the things that he uh, states is that um, what a special privilege it is to be called to represent Christ at this pivotal moment in history. We are called for such a time as this, and we must pray that our light might shine more brightly than ever in our darkening world. Now, many of us feel like, Lord God, why did you place me here and why, why am I living now? We're more frustrated by it all, and yet I think the position that he has taken is the right one because God has placed us in this strategic point in history for his good purpose. We'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Erwin Lutzer. He is the author of We Will Not Be Silenced, Responding Courageously to Our Culture's um, uh, to our culture's assault on Christianity. You have a chapter titled Vilify, 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 and how uh, disagreements um, are being resolved or failing to be resolved is perhaps a better way of putting it. Can you give us an example of what this means for the church today, our unwillingness to simply be civil to one another, to a- accept that we have disagreements uh, rather than to vilify one's opponent so that there can not only be um agreement, but uh, we can't even associate because the, uh, our opponents are always evil. Exactly. That's the way in which the left looks at things. It's not just that you disagree with me and we have a disagreement, but you disagree with me, therefore you are evil. So you asked, uh, Georgine, the question of give an example. Well, I could give many, but here in Missouri, There is a church which last year, just a year ago now, the pastor preached a message on Genesis 1.27 saying that uh, there are only two genders. Now, he was so kind. He talked about those who struggle with same-sex attraction or those who believe they're transgender. In fact, the message was so kind and so loving, I wondered whether or not he was going to land the plane, so to speak, but he did. (laughs) The next day... That church was vilified in the newspapers. It was on television throughout Missouri. And students at the university said, I can't, I don't know if I can feel safe in a city, in a city of, in where, this was the city of Columbia. I don't know that I can feel safe in Columbia if there's a church that believes there are only two genders. You know, I deal with this in the book, how there's safism today where, oh, you said something that offended me. I need a safe place because my oppression is not being fully realized. Well, anyway, this church had raised two months before $420,000 to pay for all the outstanding hospital bills for people in their community. They had been actively involved in the community in so many helpful ways and in terms of um, the poor and all. 
you know, it is often said, we need to be known for what we are for and not just for what we are against. This church was widely known for what it was for. But when it came time for them to be against something, everybody, um, everybody forgot that, and this church was vilified. Well, that's coming to a church near you. But that yes. gives an example of how we are living at a time today when we can't, we find civil discourse very difficult because everybody is enraged by something. Everybody is offended by something. And so people are totally para, uh, paralyzed. They don't know what they can say. You know, you just say the wrong thing and people will hop on you. And on social media, pretty soon you will be docs. You'll be taken care of and you'll be canceled. Look at Drew Brees. You know, he said that he stood for the flag because he wanted to honor it. Well, the mob got after him. He apologized not once, but twice. Why? Because today we hear this. Oh, yes, you have the First Amendment. You can express your views. But if you express a wrong view, we will cancel you. Now, That's in that right. chapter, I tell one other story that I need to tell very quickly. What you need when you have a revolution always is a pretext. Kristallnacht, 1937, in Germany. Jewish businesses were burned, synagogues were burned, etc. We all know about it historically. That didn't happen in a vacuum. What happened was there was a German diplomat who was shot by a Jewish student in Paris. Hitler told his fire departments and his police to stand back. He said Jewish businesses and synagogues were going to be burned. The man who was shot was Ernst Rott. Now, I can just imagine, and I'm using my imagination here, that there were people marching the streets of Germany. We just want justice for Ernst. Justice for Ernst. Well, we saw that during the riots when we just want justice for George Floyd. We just want justice. So what you need is a pretext that will give legitimacy to your revolution. That also ties in with some of the things that we talked about, propaganda. But today, everybody's enraged, and um, freedom of speech is greatly jeopardized because everybody fears what they might say that might be wrong. Absolutely. By the way, today happens to be the anniversary. 1938 was Kristallnacht. Today was the day that occurred in Germany. We're talking about the book, We Will Not Be Silenced. Uh, it's just an excellent book to help us understand the culture, how to respond courageously to our culture's assault on Christianity, and to do so in a way that upholds the standards that Christ has set for us. Now, the final chapter of your book is based on the words of Jesus to the church in Sardis. Strengthen what remains is the phrase. And what do you think Jesus might say and is saying to the church today? Because he still speaks to us through his word. Well, what was wrong with the church in Sardis? They had a reputation of being alive, but they were dead. And the problem with the church in Sardis was that they no longer saw the world as an enemy. So they embraced their culture. And I suggest that what Jesus would say to the church today is, number one, be sure that you are clear on the gospel, be gospel-driven, and don't get caught up in social justice. Now, there's a right way to define it and a wrong way. That would be a separate discussion. 
But there are many churches today that no longer evangelize because they are into social justice. Number two, Jesus would talk about the sexuality of the culture. As a matter of fact, what happened in Sardis was the church bought into pagan culture and sexuality. So I point that out. And then I think the third thing that he would say is, love me more than you love your sin. And there I talk briefly about social media technology, which is a tremendous enemy of the church today. Now, it's good. We all use technology. We all use our computers, and we use Zoom and everything else. But the point is that so much which is on the Internet is impure. It is instantly addictive. And so I weep for the younger generation caught up in technology. So Jesus would say that, and then he would tell us to be sure to remain strong and to know that how we look in heaven is much more important than how we look on earth. Mm, Amen. Where can our listeners acquire a copy of We Will Not Be Silenced? Because every one of them needs a copy of this book. Thank you so much for asking. Of course, they can buy it on Amazon, but there are many listeners who might want to support our Moody Media Ministry. So here's what they can do. They can go to MCM. That, of course, stands for Moody Church Media, but it's all one word, mcmoffer, dot com, And for a gift of any amount, it will be sent out immediately. That's mcmoffer.com. And I want to thank many listeners in advance for helping us. Running to Win is now in more than 20 different countries, all because of our wonderful supporters. Well, Dr. Lutzer, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. But more, most importantly, for this book, We Will Not Be Silenced. It's an important book that covers the issues that the, uh, the church is facing today and gives us some clear direction on how we might effectively minister in this very time that God has placed us in. Thank you so much, Georgine. Thank you. And once again, I so appreciate uh, what he says, what a special privilege it is to be called to represent Christ at this pivotal moment in history. It may not feel like that. You may wish you were from an, uh, an easier time, and yet God has appointed us to this time. We need to be equipped so that we can, as the subtitle of the book says, respond courageously to our culture's assault on Christianity, because more than anything else, the culture needs Jesus. And if we don't tell them How will they know? You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. I wanted to return to a subject that's near and dear to my heart. I addressed it earlier this week, and that is valuing a forgotten national treasure, the elderly. I um, found this on Facebook, and I've seen it before, and I may have shared it here before, but I wanted to repeat it because I think it puts into perspective who we're talking about, the generation, what they have experienced, and what we might glean from them, or just simply might honor them for the uh, sake of, um, well, their value. Uh, imagine being born in 1900. Uh, when you were 14 years old, World War I begins and ends when you're 18. With 22 million dead, shortly after the world pandemic flu called Spanish, killing 50 million people. You go out alive and free, or you got out, and you're 20 years old. Now imagine that. Then, at uh, the age of 29, you survived the global economic crisis that started with the collapse of the New York Stock Exchange, causing inflation, unemployment, and hunger. 
Nazis come to power at 33. You're 39 when World War II begins, and it ends when you're 45 during the Holocaust. Six million Jews die. There will be a total of more than 60 million dead. When your 52nd Korean War, well, 52, rather, the Korean War begins. When you're 64, the Vietnam War begins and ends when you're 75. A baby born in 1985 believes his grandparents have no idea how hard life is and survived several wars and disasters. A boy born in 1995 and 25 today believes that the end of the world when his um, Amazon package takes more than three days to arrive or if he doesn't exceed 15 uh, likes uh, for his posted photo on Facebook or Instagram. In 2020, many of us live in comfort, have access to various sources of entertainment at home, and often have more than uh, than needed. But people complain about everything. They have electricity, phone, food, hot water, and a roof over their heads. None of this existed. But humanity survived much more serious circumstances and never lost the joy of life. Maybe it's time to be a little less selfish, stop whining, and crying. And then Dennis Woodruff, who has a heart for the elderly, sent this to me. And I'm going to read in part the email uh, that he sent that is part of a, a um, newsletter that he publishes, the Ministry Corner. Uh, and uh, he reminds us of who some of these men and women uh, are who are now um, considered elderly. He writes, the unshaven man sitting in the corner with a slipper missing He once stormed the beachhead of Normandy, France, America's entry into World War II European theater. The lady who keeps asking if we've seen her father, she raised six children, attended a two-acre farm, and managed three um, canners in the heat of summer without any air conditioning, as her husband worked two jobs and helped at home to provide for them. The man crying in the other room, he was the uh, only survivor of his air crew that were shot down over the Sea of Japan in World War II's Pacific, uh, Pacific Theater. The lady who refuses to give up her hymn book, she was the daughter of an African-American sharecropper in Alabama in the 20s and sang in her church choir most of her life and sang opera in the Metropolitan Opera House in New York City. The man who keeps standing up to sing, he was the choir director of his church for many years back when it was volunteer opportunity. The members of the greatest generation were uh, the man of the uh, 2030 club. They built shelters to shield students from the rain and cold. The JCs sponsored carnivals, haunted houses and other events. The Rotary sponsored parades. The women who served as wax and waves alongside the soldiers, they rolled badges um, led 4-H Girl Scouts, Cub Scouts, and Bluebirds. Yes, the greatest generation doing its thing, and there were so many more doing so much more. As I've said before, he writes, these are the very same people who served our country in World War II and Korea and Vietnam. They jitterbugged to the big band and waltzed and two-stepped to the Grand Old Opry. They watched Lawrence Welk on Saturday night and served in churches on Sunday mornings, they supported the church financially. They sang in its choirs, visited their family, neighbors and church friends in nursing homes and hospitals and shut ins. They led youth groups, yours and mine, and drove us screaming teenagers to the beach and to the mountains. They slept in tents with us on their vacations. They took us to church, set examples, led us to salvation and showed us the way. They made so many sacrifices for us. They were there for us then and now. Today, they need us. How can we say no? And if we don't do more now to set an example, who will there be for us? One of the ladies at the memory care center where I serve, and again, I'm quoting from the writer of this email, Dennis Woodruff, who sent this to me recently. 
one of the ladies at the memory uh, care center where I serve who has never showed any sign that she was aware of what was um, what we were doing there said these are such wonderful songs while I was collecting her hymn book at the close of our service. A man in a nursing home who also never seemed to be aware of anything that was going on around him and had just lost his very loving and devoted wife, grabbed my hand and kissed it while I was turning the pages of his hymn book one day. Yes, we gave hymn books to those who don't seem to understand, too, because we believe that the Lord can and does speak through the dementia. And yet we were approached by the daughter of a lady who seemed to always be sleeping, and she thanked us for the service, and she told us that her mother had not remembered anything for years, yet now she not only remembers that we were there, but um, even remembers what hymn we sang. And f- and uh, f- finally, a man at a memory care center who also seems to be uh, sleeping, uh, when asked about what he was grateful for about the service, said, thank your thoughtfulness and religious guidance. Uh, uh, thanks to that, where would we be without your church service? Well, this to me is proof that it's very important to reach out to these dear people, not only to show them some love, but because some of them who were resistant to the teachings of the gospel and salvation all of their lives are now ready, willing and able to listen and believe in Jesus. Just another example of the um, the value of these um, forgotten elders of ours. Now, I um, received an email a couple of days ago from Pastor Allen, and he commended me for taking care of my mother. And I had to write back to him. And I wrote, uh, you know, I don't want you to think more highly of me than you ought. And I explained to him how challenging and difficult it is every day, sometimes moment by moment, uh, to minister to and serve my mother, who's in her 90s, um, and how very often I have to pray and ask God to give me whatever I need to serve her in a loving and patient way. There are times when uh, going into her apartment and recognizing all the things that need to be done when I get there, I'm already tired. I'm not fully recovered from my own health uh, issues. I just have to take a deep breath and step into the room. But I will tell you the value that she brings to our relationship. The things that I'm learning from her make it more than um, more than worthwhile. She often says, you know, I apologize for um taking up your time. I apologize for being forgetful. And I remind her, you know, when I was, when I was young, I never once apologized for being annoying. I never once apologized for being inconvenient. I never once um, uh, uh, thanked her, particularly as a young person, uh, thanked her for the the time and the uh, resource that was necessary to raise me. Every meal I ever ate for the most part for my first 18 years of life, she prepared for me every stitch of clothing. She and my father provided for me. And it didn't occur to me at that time to be as grateful as I should have been. So the opportunity to serve her um, is just the opportunity to say thank you. She's essentially invested and now um, she is enjoying the dividends of that investment. So I don't want to give the impression that, oh, yes, I, I'm such a virtuous daughter that uh, I, I go into the, the project singing and delighted. It's it's challenging. It's the most difficult thing I've ever done. But I'm grateful that God has given me the opportunity. And in the process, he's developing my character in ways that nothing else uh, would quite do. So my point, we need to value our forgotten national treasure, the treasure that is part of the church and those who are yet to be a part of the church, the elderly among us, and make a sacrifice now and then uh, to convey their value and to invest in them as that generation has invested in. 
in hours. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.